This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This is C-SPAN's Afterwards podcast. This week, Democratic Senator from Illinois, Tammy Duckworth, on her book, Every Day is a Gift. The senator talks about her life and career in the military and in the U.S. Senate. Thank you so much for joining us today, Senator, to discuss your book. Thanks for having me on. I'm very excited to be here. Well, I wanted to start at, you know, your entire life story is, is incredibly moving and has so many emotional moments. As a congressional editor, though, on a lighter note, I loved the portion of your book where you say, people tell me that I'm the first senator to have a baby while in office. No, I'm the first senator to give birth while in office. <laughs> exactly. The men have been having babies for years. <laughs> it's, you know, but it tells you when average age, you know, something like 70, it's hard for a female senator to be to give birth in office. So we need we need more younger senators and more women senators. Absolutely. So, you know, the passages in the book on this are fantastic, but I'm hoping you and I can have a candid conversation about what that was like on a personal level. We all know, uh, us more than others, the Senate is a very tradition-bound and often hide-bound institution. How awkward was that, talking through, you know, I'm not going to, I think you actually used the phrase, uh, whip out a a breast on the Senate floor. I mean, it's amazing. (laughs) Right. Well, as soon as I became pregnant. I mean, I, I went, I got pregnant through IVF. So I was trying, but as soon as we were successful, um, we began having the conversations because remember the Senate was even then when we, when Democrats were in the minority, we were pretty evenly divided. And um, uh, I knew that we would need every single vote. So I could not take maternity leave. And by the way, Senate rule says I cannot take maternity leave because if I do, then I can't introduce legislation. I can't vote. I can't do anything. So um, I couldn't even give birth back in Illinois where I wanted to give birth. I had to do it in DC because if I was in Illinois, I would have been stuck there. You can't take a newborn baby on an airplane. Um, so even from the beginning, I knew that we would have to work through a lot of issues, including um, the Senate rules. Uh, you know, I, there's no way for me to get on the floor to vote um, with my baby uh, unless they change the rules. Um, and, uh, that was almost a nine month long process of negotiations with Amy Klobuchar and with my chief of staff going back and forth, back and forth first with, um, you know, uh, uh, Orrin Hatch, who was the, uh, the rules committee chairman. And then later on with Roy Blunt, when he took over. Um, you know, what did that experience show you and tell you about, you know, how far Washington and the Hill has to go to be truly feminist in terms of its ability to represent, female concerns that are frankly male concerns, because as you point out, fathers raise children too. 
Well, exactly. And you know, let me tell you one thing I learned is that you can find allies in unexpected places. That process, once the senators knew that I was having these conversations and negotiating, there were those who were very, very tradition oriented. You know, Orrin Hatch was sort of at the forefront of that because he was the rules committee chairman and he really didn't want to change the rules. And he asked questions like, what is the baby's dress code going to be? And, and you know, as a mom with a baby, it's like, are you seriously asking me what, whether the, a newborn baby is going to adhere to a Senate dress code, which is, you know, arms will be covered, no hats, must wear shoes, must have a blazer. I'm like, well, okay. She wears a beanie. Um, I'm not going to take that off. Um, you know, she'll be in a footy pajamas. I can't, I guess I could put shoes on that, but why would I? Okay. I'll put a blazer on her, which I did that day. But then on the other hand, I had members, um, you know, Republican members who came up to me and said, uh, Marco Rubio, somebody that I've hardly ever agreed with on any number of things, came up to me and said, Tammy, I'm with you. I will speak up for you. I wish that I could have brought my young kids to the floor. And, and he totally understood because we need to do this. We need to change the rules. This is crazy. And Roy Blunt, before he became chairman, said, Tammy, I'm going to be the next chairman. As soon as I am, I'm going to change the rules because I remember when I was in the house, how great it was that I could bring my children to the floor when I was in the house. I'm with you. And as soon as he became chairman, um, literally within the same week, he changed the rules for me. Wow, that is really fascinating. Um, and it brings me to another you know, question I had as a Hill person, you know, I, I consider the photograph of you entering, you know, the, the building to vote pretty iconic holding your baby daughter, you know, and you're somebody who's been in the public eye for so long. Um, and you address this a little bit in your book, but to what extent did that feel so much different because it's not just you as a public figure, it's, it's Miley now being in the public eye. It is Miley. Um, you know, I, I am very jealous of guarding my daughter's um, privacy. So when you see pictures of them, you rarely see pictures um, where you can see their full face. Sometimes you'll see that where um, media has captured it. But I, I, I almost never post pictures where you can see my children's faces because they deserve their privacy and, and they can decide once they're of age whether or not they want to post pictures of themselves in, on social media. Um, but, you know, I, I, it was important for me to be seen going onto the floor to do my job as a working mom because we're fighting for working moms everywhere. So, yes, it was about me and my daughter, but it was also very symbolic for all of the moms who work outside of the homes in this country as well, I think, to see me break down that barrier so that I could show that, you know, even a senator can have to fight to bring her kid onto the floor to do her job. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and speaking of, like, you know, very common experiences that women often don't talk about. You know, you were very candid in the book about IVF and how tough that was. Um, yeah. And this is something that a lot of women are starting to share about more and more and, and get rid of the unnecessary shame attached to it. Um, and I, I loved the way you talked about it, very matter of fact. And I loved how frank you were about your initial experience, you know, with a doctor at a Catholic hospital who did not give you your full options. So you discuss this in the book, but I'm hoping for viewers, you, you can walk through sort of what that showed you as somebody who's now active in, in helping press healthcare policy to be more inclusive of all fertility options. Well, that was the, that was a learning experience for me because I was a congresswoman at the time. And I, uh, well, prior to becoming a congresswoman, I was uh, at the VA and I also go to VA for my healthcare and VA doesn't do fertility, at the time did not do fertility services and still has very limited services. In fact, and VA referred me to their partner hospital. Every VA hospital has a civilian uh, teaching hospital that is their partner. And the VA that I go to um, 
the civilian hospital happens to be a Catholic institution, which I didn't ever think about. I, I would go to them for mammograms and things like that and, and always had great care um, whenever VA referred me to them. But when they, they referred me for fertility services, the doctor in the fertility clinic there didn't even examine me, didn't even take me into the clinic. She met me in the waiting room and said, you're 43 years old you're too old. Um, fertility services just won't work for you. You have less than a 3% chance of getting pregnant. Um, so the best you can do is just go home and enjoy your husband. And then she sent me on my merry way and not knowing anything about fertility treatments, I believed her. Um, this was a doctor, right? In the hospital that I have received excellent care at and it never even occurred to me. And so I thought, and I had already believed that I was too old anyway at 43 to really um, uh, you know, ever get pregnant. And I've been trying for 10 years so I went home, told my husband, and I write, wrote about this in the book. Of course, my husband smirked about, you know, going home and enjoying your husband. Uh, he loved that line. Um, and it wasn't until three years later when I was um, giving a, a, you know, I was speaking at a, a women in leadership seminar when uh, a woman who was there, a question was asked, you know, how do you manage work-life balance? And I said, well, you know, I, I try, but I, I regret that I was never able to have children because I put off having children until I was in my mid thirties. And then I struggled and couldn't get pregnant. And now I'm too old. I'm 40, you know, by this point, I'm, I'm 44, 45. Um, and a woman in the, in the audience came up to me and said, you're not too old. You're going to go to this doctor, Dr. Confino at Northwestern Hospital in Chicago. He's knocked up every single woman uh, you know, over 40, you know, professional woman over 40 in Chicago. You need to go to him. And I write about this in the book that I sort of didn't believe her. And so I sort of was very polite. And then she just continued to pester me every month <laughs> for like six months. And finally I went. And when I went in to see Dr. Confino, he's like, well, yeah, you know, if you work with me, we go through the process, we'll get you, you know, there's no reason why you can't get pregnant. He actually examined me and, and, and we went through the process. And 18 months to the day from when I went to see Dr. Confino, I was pregnant. Mm -hmm. um, and I write about this openly in the book because I don't want anybody else to be misled the way I was. And, and, and when I went and I said, well, I thought I couldn't get pregnant and, and I was too old. And, the, and he said, well, where did you go? And I told him and he said, oh, well, that's very typical of Catholic institutions because um, uh, the Catholic church uh, does not support um, in vitro fertilization techniques, IVF spe specifically, um, because it's fertilization of an egg um, outside of the human body. And he said, that happens a lot. And so I included this in the book because I want people other women, other, you know, families that are trying to start a family to know that they have options and that it is a struggle, but the end is worth it. You know, I now have two beautiful girls. One I had at 46 and Miley, I had two weeks after I turned 50. So anything is possible. <laughs> incredible. It's, it's really incredible. Yeah. And I mean, obviously, as, as you say, I encourage all viewers to go read the book because you go into this in, in very great depth. Um, but, you know, I, I'm wondering how you contextualize this recent story. And we haven't even gotten to, you know, the rest of your life story as you make healthcare policy, you know, because there are very few members, even some of the wonderful female senators who have your kind of direct experience with these choices that, uh, you know, working women, I'm a professional woman, my thirties make, you know, make every day. So do you think, do you think about this, you know, as you're working or is it kind of separate from your work life? No, I am. I am. Everything that I have experienced, I bring to work with me because I think it makes me a better public servant to my constituents. Um, I also tell my staff members as they go through their lives and they have experiences that they too should bring that forward. What's the point of working for a United States Senator if you can't uh, work on you know, your passion? I call them passion projects. So um, I have been working very hard on reproductive rights, not just a progressive Democratic woman, but I've actually brought people's attention, including many of my Republican colleagues, to the fact that 
if um, uh, you uh, support these personhood amendments where a fertilized egg is considered to be a person with full personhood rights, like many of the laws that are being passed at state level, you will make IVF impossible and out of reach for most people. My own doctor said to me, if you do, if this passes, Tammy, um, I could be convicted of manslaughter when I put three fertilized eggs in you, knowing that probably two of them are not going to take because those two are human beings with, with full personage rights. So think about what you're doing when you do, when you pass legislation on reproductive access for women. Um, and, and so I, you know, I bring that to the table and I wrote about it uh, uh, oftentimes in letters to my colleagues and, and I speak up all the time. It's not just about choice in terms of abortions. It's about choice in terms of the choice to want to have children and to have techniques be, be moved beyond my grasp because of these laws that um, have unseen consequences that most people don't even think about. Absolutely. I mean, I remember personally, because I covered this, you know, you, you raised this issue and had a personal discussion about it during the, the Barrett confirmation process. And I wonder if, you know, as you talk to more of your colleagues, like you mentioned, Senators Rubio and Blunt as, you know, allies in access on the floor, are, are you finding your personal story makes them more receptive and open to talking about this? I think so, you know, and I and, and it's happened time and again, um, whether it's that or, I, you know, when, when we're talking about the post office, the need to preserve and actually support the U.S. Postal Service, I get my medication through the mail. And, you know, for it's one thing for the mail to be a couple of days late, but when it's three days, three weeks late, and it's my pain medication for phantom pain is in there, veterans are suffering when we don't support the U.S. Postal Service. So I, it's all sorts of things that I bring to the table. I, I talk about the MAMA Act. You know, I introduced the MAMA Act talking about um, uh, the high uh, more maternal mortality rates among African-American women in particular, the need to really support uh, mothers of color who oftentimes uh, uh, are not listened to in the childbirth process. Um, I just introduced uh, um, End Diaper Needs Act talking about families that can't afford diapers and can't even afford them, you know, to put their children in daycare, not because uh, they don't have access to daycare, it's because they don't have access to diapers. They're choosing between buying food or buying diapers. And so um, many daycare, if you've dropped your child off, you have to include diapers with that. If you can't afford to buy diapers, you can't put your child in daycare, which means you then can't go to work. Um, and so uh, I think it makes a legislator a better legislator um, if they've had these life experiences and bring it with them, to, um, you know, and, and my colleagues across the aisle have their own experiences, you know, as doctors and, and, uh, and, you know, as moms as well, that they bring to the table that are helpful to them as well. Fascinating. You know, just switch gears for a second and, and go back to the earlier chapters in your life that you discuss in the book. You know, I was really struck reading the New York Times review of this because they had the thought that I had reading it. There, there are some parallels to dreams from my father. You know, you are a, a biracial political figure who gets extremely personal. You know, your style of writing is, is very different from former President Obama's in a way that I found really enjoyable. You know, he's, he can be a little ornate and you have, you have spare prose. I like that you just got down to it in describing what, what that was like. Um, but if you could just discuss, I guess, who, who your influences were, because you're so candid about what it was like growing up and having this vision of America while not, you know, spending the first years of your life in America and you, you get really personal. So did you, did you look to inspirations? Did you say, I'm going to tell this the way that Senator Duckworth would talk? You know, the book that I really enjoyed was Trevor Noah's Born a Crime. Um, and he, he, his book was my inspiration because in reading Born a Crime, I thought I was going to, I mean, the, the title is amazing at first, you know, um, uh, very deeply personal. 
about being born biracial in South Africa and how even his own birth was a crime. The, the fact that his parents, uh, uh, you know, uh, got together and, and, and had him. Um, and in fact, when my parents, um, you know, met each other and fell in love and, and had me, my dad in his home state of Virginia could not have married my mother because loving the Virginia had not yet passed. So, um, you know, and, and then I learned so much about apartheid and the experience of apartheid uh, to the individual, uh, both on the, on the black side of the, of the equation and the white side of the equation from Trevor Noah's book. And I wanted to do the same thing for the experience of growing up biracial in Asia and, and I wanted to teach the reader a little bit about what it was like to grow up in Southeast Asia post Vietnam, but also why I to this day still believe America is worth it. America is worth fighting for. Um, it's really, I, I got right to writing this book because my six-year-old daughter, Abigail, asked me that question. Mommy, you don't have legs. You, you know, she, she wants to learn to ride her bike and she wants me to teach her because I'm a little bit more patient than my husband <laughs> with these things. And, and, but I can't run alongside her and push her bike. And, and um, so she, she, you know, she's like, why couldn't somebody else's mommy or daddy gone to Iraq and lost their legs? How come it had to be you? And I wrote this book and I wanted to be very upfront about it to show that America is worth it. This democracy is worth it. And, and, it began with me growing up as an American in Southeast Asia, revering America and understanding what a privilege it was I, that I was an American, that I could leave war-torn countries when I wanted to because I had that American passport. And a lot of other Amerasian children could not because they had been abandoned by their fathers the way I had not been abandoned by mine. Mm. Mm. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption and logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com insights. Speaking of your father, you know, his experience in the VA system, you know, uh, was the first chapter in a chapter that you yourself continued later on as, as uh, somebody grappling with, with the vagaries of the VA and trying to make it better. If you could just talk readers through a little bit, whether that was personally painful for you to explore, I mean, because it's such a combination of the personal and, and frankly, the political to talk about how this system can fail. Well, yeah, so my dad, did what a lot of veterans do, which is they don't go to VA to get the care that they need and the support that they need because they think they're okay and they're saving the care for their buddies. And my dad time and again lied to the VA. I mean, he had wounds uh, from his military service and he would say, no, I'm fine. I don't need anything. I'm good. You just, you, you, you take care of the other guys, which is what you learn to do in the service. You learn to take care of each other and you look out for your buddies. And our veterans would take that to the most extreme form. And I, I, I write about this in the book where 
For example, in Illinois, when I was the director of the State Department of Veterans Affairs, the federal VA said that there were 800,000 veterans in Illinois. But I knew that there were at least 1.2 million veterans because that's how many individual veterans had applied for license plates from the Secretary of the State. So the VA is undercounting 400,000 veterans in Illinois, which means that when the VA goes to build a new hospital, they look at all the states and they go, well, Illinois only has 800,000 veterans. It doesn't need that additional one or two hospital we're going to build. And that means that Illinois doesn't get those hospitals. And when those other 400,000 veterans that are not being counted do need to go to VA for help, the help isn't there. It's gone somewhere else. And so I spend a lot of time telling veterans, even if you don't ever plan to use it, go sign up so that the VA knows you're there. The best way you can take care of buddies is not to not enroll in VA. It's the best way you can take care of your buddy is to enroll so that they know that you are there and your nose gets counted. But I run into this all the time with veterans. They're still in that mode of taking care of their buddies, sacrificing for the team instead of watching out for themselves. And it actually ends up hurting the team when they don't go in and get the care that they need. Hmm. Yeah. So I should say, you know, I, I described it as a system failure, but you eloquently say this in the book. And maybe it's not a system failure. It's it's just a matter of, of the culture of taking care of veterans needing to evolve. Is it your hope that telling your story can help that happen? I hope so. I mean, I, I've been telling, you know, all the stories of the, in the book about me growing up in, you know, in, in Asia and, and revering America and being so lucky that I was an American or talking about being hungry uh, when I was in my teens and I and my dad had lost his job and was unemployed for four or five years when he was in his 50s. I've been telling these stories to people because I know that there are people that, you know, have lost a job in their 50s and can't get another one and are behind on their rent and are literally a day away from homelessness the way we were and are grateful for the food stamps or are, are, are just scraping by whatever they can. And they're choosing between, um, you know, do I, do I feed my kids or do I take medicine? You know, all of those things. I, I've been telling these stories and I put them all together in the book to show that you're not alone. You're not alone, you know, and, and that there are people like me who are in you know, positions of power who understand and see you and, and are trying our best to solve the problems that you're facing. But that despite all of that, the safety nets were there for me. The safety nets were there. I did get the food stamps when I needed. I could go to a public school that I could graduate from. I could graduate from college with relatively low debt as you know, for my bachelor's degree. All of that was available so that I could join the army so that I could become a US Senator one day. Um, and I wanna make sure those safety nets are there for other people. Hmm. Hmm. I, another sort of question I had about you know, your inspirations in this, you know, deal with the current situation with anti-Asian uh, hate crimes, frankly. You know, we're, we're in a, a really terrifying moment for a lot of Asian American and Pacific Islanders in this country. Um, and I know you're working on legislation that can help address this, but I'm wondering, you know, uh, when you were writing this book, I imagine we, we maybe weren't yet in the coronavirus pandemic, but, but whether that entered into your mind in terms of sort of talking about your experience to people who might suffer discrimination here in America. So I wrote the chapters about feeling like a permanent other, about actually being discriminated against when I was in Asia because I was half white. I was actually scorned for being half white um, and, and actually um, insulted and, and, and treated differently by my own Asian cousins because I was half white and didn't fit in with the Asian community. And then I talked about being an other, um, you know, later on in life, that all happened before coronavirus hit. 
Um, uh, and so I, I hope people will take from that and understand that this is a universal experience among Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders in the United States. We are the one group in this country that after some of our ancestors having earned citizenship in fighting for the North in the Civil War, had it taken away from them in a Chinese Exclusion Act. Like veterans of the Civil War actually had their citizenship that they had earned taken away due to the Chinese Exclusion Act. Um, we are the only population that had our families uh, put into internment camps in the middle of a war and fought for this country, even as our family members were living behind barbed wire just because they were of Japanese descent or even looked like they may be of Japanese descent. And so, um, you know, I, in, uh, you know, have had people come up to me while I was wearing the uniform of my nation with the American flag on my shoulder, asked me, okay, but where are you really from? Duckworth isn't really your name, right? That, that's your husband's name. I was like, no, I'm a Duckworth. And the Duckworths have been here since before the revolution. Um, you know, and so I wanted to explain that. And so this past year has been really hard on the AAPI community because that otherness has always been with us. But now uh, to be the target of hate crimes that is just exploding. Um, and, and part of it is because the president of the United States was using hate speech. Donald Trump was saying things like the Kung flu virus and, and blaming uh, uh, the Chinese for the virus, but not saying, you know, the People's Republic of China, but saying the Chinese. So people were coming up to Chinese Americans and, and committing hate crimes against them um, has been really traumatic for the AAPI community. In fact, hate crimes have risen by over 150% in our major cities, uh, over 3,000 cases of reported hate crimes against AAPIs. And we know that most hate crimes against AAPIs are never reported and recorded as such. They're recorded as vandalism, muggings, theft, anything other than a hate crime. Mm-hmm. You know, the answer to this might be nothing, but I do do wonder, Senator, you know, if, if you got the chance to reopen your book now in light of what we're seeing in terms of bias crime and say anything more in addition to how you address the otherness issues, would you add anything? Um, I think I would maybe have uh, spent a little bit more time talking about how, when it really mattered, the identity of America was really all that mattered. You know, in my helicopter on that day, I I talked at length about the shoot down. Um, uh, I think I would have talked about when you're in part of a helicopter crew, it doesn't matter, you know, if you're rich or poor, if you're black or white or Asian um, or Hispanic. I've been part of helicopter crews where there's, you know, one of each flavor of Skittle in there. (laughs) Uh, you know, we're, we're all a bag of Skittles. We all come from different, you know, we're all different colors. We're all Skittles and, and we're all Americans. Um, and, and that's why I love the army because it didn't matter who I was or, you know, that I was a little half-breed Asian girl, you know, mixed race girl. Um, uh, it only mattered if I could shoot straight and whether or not I was willing to carry the load um, when someone needed help. And I, I may have spent, I would probably have spent more time on that from a racial perspective than just from, a, you know, speaking of falling in love with the army because of its meritocracy. Interesting, interesting. Well, that's a, actually a good segue to to the portion of the book where you talk about the shoot down. Um, you know, I, I read another New York Times interview with you and prep for, for this discussion in, in which you talk about, you know, I don't really like to consume too much pop culture about war because it's a little bit emotionally tough for me to watch, you know, that replayed on screen. How hard was it to put all this on paper? Um, it was hard, but it all, I did it all in one single sitting. It was, it was very cathartic in a way. Um, uh, but I did have to go back and talk to a lot of people because uh, I don't have a lot of memory of what happened 
past um, landing the, the aircraft. So when Dan Milberg, my pilot in command, landed the aircraft and I reached up to try to do to finish the emergency engine shutdown to prevent a fire, I passed out then. Um, I came to later on just, you know, within the hour and I, I had lots of conversations with people, but I don't remember any of that because the doctors and nurses at the emergency room in Baghdad actually gave me a drug to sedate me that they knew the side effect would be to wipe my memory and my, my short-term memory. And they do that for all of the wounded coming through as a, as an act of mercy. Um, and I am grateful to them for that, but I had to go find those doctors and nurses and talk to them and hear what happened in that intervening time. Um, and I found it um, incredibly rewarding because I was told of things that I said and did that I'm, I'm very proud of. I mean, I, I didn't, I was not a hero that day. I didn't land the aircraft. I didn't carry anybody to safety, but um, until they sedated me, uh, I was watching out for my crew. And, and for me as a soldier, as an army officer, um, that ultimately was vindication for who I was at my core, that I was watching out for my guys until the end. Mm. Wow. That is such a remarkable experience having to place those calls and have those conversations. And you mentioned you did this. Did you have any research assistants or others helping you piece all this together? Or was it just I, you? I did. It was, you know, it was, it was a group project. Um, uh, it was mostly, I reached out. What happened was um, over the years, some folks had found me. So when I was at Walter Reed recovering, um, one of the, the nurse in charge of the emergency room had come up to me and, and said, you, I know who you are. This is within like four or five months of me being wounded. And he said, you were talking to me. You came through my emergency room. I just want you to know what you did. And he gave me his name. And then um, I was able to track down the, uh, the medevac uh, medic in the medevac helicopter. And then he put me in touch with other folks. And so it sort of expanded and it ended up being a little Facebook group for the medevac unit and the hospital unit where they all were, you know, it, it was a, uh, in, in, in statistics, it's called snowball sampling. Um, think of a snowball rolling downhill, getting bigger and bigger. Once I found one person, they helped me find two people and that helped me find three people. Um, and before long, I was in touch with all sorts of folks who were, you know, in, some in civilian life, some in student service, all reaching out and they all talked to each other. And it became very healing for the others as well, because many of them um, never saw once they treated you in Baghdad, what happened to the patients. They didn't know if those patients died or survived or what it was. And so for many of them, it was closure. And for some of them, one nurse in particular who intubated me, he said that I had haunted him for 15 years um, with my final words to him uh, before he um, sedated me. And, and he just thanked me for letting him know I was okay. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Were any of them kind of impressed that you're now a U.S. Senator? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, the thing about being in the military is you don't talk politics and you don't care, you know, where, where people are on the political spectrum. But, you know, they know uh, it's look, the book is called Every Day is a Gift because every day since that day when I was shot down in Iraq, um, has been a gift. I, I should have I should have died in that dusty field in Iraq. This, you know, the only reason I survived was through the heroism of my crew, the the heroism of the doctors and the nurses, um, and all the people who took care of me. And so every day for me, it's literally a gift these men and women have given me. And um, I try to convey that to them and say, listen, we may not always agree, but know that you guys are my north star, and that I try to never make you ashamed or embarrassed to have saved me by what I've done. Mm. 
Yeah, uh, speaking of the title, you know, it's an interesting contrast with Trevor Noah's title, Your Inspiration. You know, his title, Born a Crime, sort of is, is very upfront about the trauma inherent. You have experienced a lot of trauma in your life and yet chose to title your book something that's a really joyful, positive sentiment. Was it hard to settle on that title? Did you have a lot of discussions with others? Oh my gosh, we had all sorts of discussion about what the book was going to be called. There, um, There's a, a saying, uh, um, uh, strong in the broken places. Max Cleland used that as a book for his, for his, uh, the title for his book. Uh, he's a, a triple uh, amputee from um, uh, Vietnam. Um, um, you know, stronger. We, we thought of all sorts of things. I, you know, my call sign was Mad Dog Six. We could have called it that. But one day when I was talking, um, uh, uh, as I was writing this to the publishers and, and, and to my collaborator, um, you know, I was talking about the shoot down. And, and I was saying, but you know, Every day in my life, I think they asked me, it's, it's, I had a tough day at work. I don't know it, I, what it was. Maybe it was a healthcare fight or something. And I said, yeah, I'm really exhausted today. And they're like, yeah, you had a tough day. I said, yeah, but you know, every day is a gift because every day, you know, I have is one that I'm surprised that I have. And then they went, that's the title. <laughs> <laughs> that's the title every day. Cause that's how I live my life. Every day I get up, I thank Dan Milberg and Pat Minks and Chris Fierce and, and, and Kurt Hanneman and Matt Back is for carrying me out of that field in Iraq. And then I, you know, and, and, and then I say, okay, you know, what do I need to do today to live up to what they did for me on that day? Mm. Wow. Yeah. Sometimes all the brainstorming ends and you just sometimes uttering the title out loud. I love that story. Yeah. Um, you know, another logistical question, Senator, I'm just so impressed that you had the time to write this. And you mentioned that you wrote the, the part about, you know, your crash in one sitting. How did you do it? Did you just forego sleep? Did your husband take over childcare duties? <laughs> you know, I do it in bits and pieces. So when I was doing the proposal for the book, I was actually writing it on the notes app on my iPhone on airplanes. Because <laughs> you fly back and forth to Illinois, you have an hour and a half there, you're sitting there. Um, uh, and then when I was on long flights, when we were doing Codell's, for example, I went back to Iraq. Uh, so I, you know, I, I just sat and wrote there. And so I, I just would write bits and pieces and put it together. And then once I had the, uh, once I, 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 you know, had the book deal and I was, I, I knew I had, I got the book deal in December and I was due the August of um, 2020, I knew that I had to get this thing done. And so I just hunkered down and wrote and, and, you know, it's just about making sure that I even 10 minutes writing down a paragraph if I, you know, and, and so it was just a process and, and, I had, I had a great collaborator who worked with me and then helped me along. And then I had lots of good proof, proofreaders. And I sent Dick Durbin, my senior senator, who is in the book talking, you know, I talk about how he found me in that hospital and gave me a new mission in, in encouraging me to run. I sent him copies to read. And then I sent, um, you know, to different folks that um, I'm a big fan of Sherrod Brown and his writing and his thought process. And his wife is also a New York Times uh, uh, you know, Connie uh, is a is a best selling author, so I sent it to them. You know, a chapter here or there, and then they gave me feedback. So I had lots of lots of people helping me along the way. I love that. I love Senator Brown and Connie helping out too. That's a great. That's a great detail. Yeah. Um, what was the hardest part of this book to write? I mean, because I'm assuming it's talking about the crash, but there might be another part that you found the most difficult. Actually, my early childhood was the hardest part. The, by the way, not a crash, it was a shoot down because the bad guys took aim. <laughs> it was not, it was not an accident. It was intentional and we actually landed the bird. So um, uh, uh, that, 
<laughs> no, 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 it's fine. It's, it's, not, it's not on me. It's the fact that Dan Milberg, the pilot in command of the aircraft, did a remarkable piece of flying and actually landed that bird in one piece. That's why we're all alive. So I want to honor his, uh, his expertise and his, you know, he, he received the Distinguished Flying Cross for his actions on that day. And so I'm always clear to say it's not a crash, it's a landing. Dan did an amazing effort. Um, you know, of, of pilotage. When we talk about it's that. Like, we'll make sure to say shoot down. We don't want to be. Yeah, Thank you. Yeah, yeah. No, no problem. Um, probably my early childhood stuff was the hardest to write. Um, I, I had closed off a lot of that. Um, you know, the struggle, uh, reliving poverty in Hawaii, what it was like. Um, I had only started talking about it in recent years, as as the nation has been, you know, in more of a depression, uh, a recession. Um, and talked about it more. And then the fact that I was on food stamps, I was very ashamed of being on food stamps um, uh, for a long time in my, you know, in my early twenties and thirties, I thought that was a failure. Uh, it, it's only, you know, until I got into later in life to realize that's not a failure. That was success, you know, because we didn't, we never gave up as a family um, to this day. Don't get between me and a penny on the ground. I will roll over you in my wheelchair to pick that penny up because I know the value of a penny. And that's not something to be embarrassed or ashamed of. That's something to be proud of because we, we picked ourselves up with the American people's help, with the food stamps, with the school lunch program, the school breakfast program. Um, that's, you know, we should be more open about that because um, there are other families that are, that are, you know, that are food insecure right now that need to know that there's hope. Yeah, well, that it makes sense. Although I would not have expected you to to choose that that part. Um, you know, you talked about Trevor Noah, um, and in that same interview of the New York Times that I referenced earlier, you, you referenced your your affection for Born a Crime, and and you also talked about you know other books like White Rage, which was a book that you referenced reading recently, and said you would like to see even the president read it. And I wished I could ask you a question. I will now ask you, which is, what book would you have? anybody working on the Hill, reporter or staffer, read as required reading? Whew. You know, I would rather have a reading list. I definitely would put White Rage on there because it really does talk about the pendulum swing in our nation every time we've had a major civil rights uh, uh, movement and success and a new, you know, a, a stepping forward, um, that there is this backlash and it's been part of our nation's history. Um, I think that's uh, one that should be read. I think that, um, uh, people should understand those in the military and that experience. Um, uh, Brendan Friedman, uh, who wrote um, The War I Always Wanted, um, is a good, that's a good um, book about the Iraq war and, and Afghanistan as well. And, and the way, what my generation of troops were thinking after ha not having been at war for well over 10 years, this was our turn to go. And, and what that coming of age story is for military men and women, but I would have a whole long list of, um, of things. And, you know, if you want to learn about apartheid, uh, South Africa, read Born a Crime, because it's really good. That's fair. A reading list is probably fair. And yeah. another book question I had is, you know, just reading a book, I was so struck, like, this is not your typical political memoir, which are oftentimes written by members who have their eye on something higher, right? You're just telling a very simple and completely engrossing story. And I wonder, you know, do, did you see this as a book for everyone, whether they honestly had no idea who you are because they're from another state? This book was written for my daughters. Hmm. I, I want them to read and understand that America is worth it. I, I want them to read and understand the struggles that I went through and that America provided me with privilege and with help all along the way, and and that um, that America is worth it. I, I truly wrote this just for my girls. Um, 
but also for others to understand that this democracy is worth fighting for and, and to maybe give people a perspective as to why I believe in the programs that I believe in and, and, and you know, why I support things like more food stamps, why I support things like more money for public education, uh, why, why I support you know, uh, uh, the policies that I do and to really explain how I got to these positions based on my experiences. Um, uh, and, and I hope people get that as well. But really this book was, is a love letter to my nation, but written for my daughters so that they would understand why um, I was willing to even compromise their life, right? My daughter doesn't have me to teach her to ride a bike. And, and that's a cost to her that I made a decision before she was even born that resulted in me in losing my legs and that I would still do it again if I was faced with the same decision because our democracy and this less than perfect union is worth the struggle to become a more perfect union. Yeah, well, speaking of your daughters, um, one portion that actually did make me laugh out loud and I'm gonna botch the paraphrase here, but when, when you were asking one of your daughters, you know, what's daddy's name? And she said, daddy's name, what's mommy's name? And she says in that perfect congressional ad voice, Tammy Duckworth, <laughs> I cracked up. Um, yeah. you know, was it a tough decision to, to like talk about your current situation as a working mom? Because as you mentioned, you want to have your daughters maintain their privacy. How did you wrestle with that, if at all? Um, if you asked me about it when I first ran for office, I would not have talked about it. But after having had my two girls, after um, um, having gone through uh, a Senate campaign while on IVF and, and trying to get pregnant and having the miscarriage, um, uh, I decided that I, I had to talk about it for other working for, for other moms who work outside the home, for other women who are struggling with, um, uh, fertility issues. Um, because I realized people would come up to me and, and, and they would have this idea that my life is, you know, all heroics and, you know, uh, VIP treatment. And I want people to know that, no, there's no such thing as work-life balance. It is a lie. It is a lie. And, and it is a lie that gets perpetuated that hurts our nation and hurts our families in the long run. Um, because there is no work-life balance, we must pass things like universal family leave, paid family leave. We need to have it. And here is why. The fact that you know, military women have to go back. This is when I first started in 2014, for example, military women had to report back to duty six weeks after giving birth, even if they've had a cesarean, even if that duty station was Afghanistan, they would have to do that. And that is wrong. So I, I, I got into that portion that was deeply personal as a mom, because I wanted to really say that I struggle with it and I see your struggles and that I too have had to pump for breast milk, my breast milk out uh, sitting on a toilet stall, you know, because there was no place to express breast milk that I was trying to do the best by my infant um, daughter. But, but the system is not set up to support a mom who works outside of the home. And, and so I felt that to, to have left it out would have been a disservice. Yeah, and as you mentioned, not even the Senate as a workplace is, is set up to support that. You know, now that this book is out, you know, and you know, we're talking today, I imagine you're doing quite a lot of other public appearances. You know, to, to what extent do you want maybe other female leadership figures in politics or elsewhere to start telling stories like this, to start getting personal, to help shift that. Yeah, I, I, I hope that more people um, step forward and speak about the struggle. Um, I understand that as a female leader, you know, I have to step forward and take charge often, 
But sometimes you're just too exhausted and you just can't take charge and you have to set up boundaries. So I want to be realistic about that. Um, uh, I get called all the time by women who want to run for office and especially for federal office, um, uh, 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 younger um, women who have, you know, uh, younger children. And I'm blunt and up and I tell them, you know, I, if you read the book, you 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 see the story where I broke down on the campaign because I just had enough and I had a huge temper tantrum and I was just you know, when I was with my campaign, I was failing my, my baby daughter. When I was with my baby daughter, I was failing my campaign. I felt inadequate and I was failing at everything. Um, even as the world saw me as this, you know, Senate candidate who had it all together. Um, and, and I want more women who actually do achieve success to be upfront about the fact that it was all struggle, that it's not all just, you, you just have to work harder. Sometimes I was working as hard as I possibly could and I was barely holding it together. Um, but I did it and I did make it. And I, that's the message I want to tell um, uh, to other families that you can make it, but it's hard. It's not easy, but it's worth it in the end. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Um, you know, and, and part of all that, you know, we're now seeing a little bit of a baby bust in this country and certainly the average age of, of motherhood, parenthood grow. You know, you as somebody who, became a mom of two at 50, you know, is there anything that in writing this and recalling what that was like, anything that surprised you, anything you'd want to share with probably women who are watching right now, wondering if they can do it? Um, yeah, I actually feel younger because of my daughters, right? They, they make me do all the things that uh, maybe when, if I had been a mom in my mid twenties, I would not have appreciated. I think I'm a calmer mother, um, more patient, but I, I also think that it's given me a second youthfulness. You know, I get to, I, I go and I sit on the swing with my kids. Well, you know, I don't think I would do that if I didn't have kids. And, and I get to do also, I went, you know, to the aquarium just the other day with my girls and my three-year-old has this great belly laugh and, and she was running from fish tank to fish tank going, <laughs> mommy fish. <laughs> I mean, and it was just like a day, you know, of just laughter. So I, I, I'd say go for it. It's, it's that old line, right? You know, you can either be a 50-year-old with kids or a 50-year-old without kids and still wonder, and, you know, wishing that you'd had them. Um, uh, or, you know, you, when you talk to somebody who's 65 who wants to go back to college and like, well, why would you do that? You're 65. Well, in four years, you'll be 69 anyway. You might as well be a 69-year-old with a college degree than one without. So do it. Very, very good point. <laughs> Um, you know, you mentioned him earlier in this conversation, but your senior senator, Senator Durbin. Um, yes. You know, he played arguably the central role in the start of your political career. And, you know, I wonder whether you had early conversations with him that shaped that part of the book or if, if there's any notable dialogues that you had with him about this as, as you wrote. So I shared um, uh, when I wrote the first half of the book um, through the shoot down, I shared it with him. And you talk about my, my writing style. Look, it's an army writing style. The army teaches you to do active writing. You get to the point, you keep your sentences short, you know, subject, verb, noun, you know, you, know, you, you, you do it, right? And, 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 and um, so that's how I write because that's how the army taught me. I'm very much active voice and, and very plain spoken because that's, I spent 23 years in the army. And I gave it to Dick and he came back to me because what well, Tammy, it was very moving. I learned a lot about your experience as a child and I can see why you are the way you are now. You made me cry with your passage about the shoot down, but Tammy, could you turn down, tone down the army language just a little bit? I don't think that's going to be good for your future career to have that many 
you're, you're that, that much army. And he like, he couldn't even say F-bombs, right? He's like, I don't think you should be right. <laughs> and I was like, and then when I gave him a copy of the book the other day, I'm like, Dick, I'm sorry, I didn't tone it down. He's like, yeah, I didn't think you would. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's really funny. <sighs> He's always watching out for me. He's my mentor. Um, but I was like, Dick, because I know you have to be true to yourself. I'm like, I don't swear that much. It's only in private that I do it. <laughs> and with people that, that won't mind, I'm with my army buddies, but I'm, I'm very much myself in the book. <laughs> Absolutely. But, but going back to the stylistic conversation, did anybody read this and go like, Senator, like maybe adjectives give me some color or were they, they kind of saying, be you right in that army style? Everybody said, be me. And I think I have, actors. I think, I think I did a good job of describing things. You know, I, I, I wanted to show, tell people, for example, what Cambodia was like yeah. um, before it was destroyed. And I remember, you know, my, my early childhood memory was sitting in a car with like a yeasty, warm roll of French bread because, you know, it had been a French colony at one point and, and, and the flowers and the mango trees. So I, there's a lot of description in the book, but um, it was just the, a description in my style of writing and talking. I needed to be true to myself. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and you 100% succeeded in that. <laughs> one, one portion of the book that I'm wondering is, you know, when you were going through fertility treatments, you know, that's, it's an incredibly tough thing to, uh, to go through the IVF process, let alone on a political campaign. Um, you know, did you consider saying more about that? Was there more that you just found tough to put into words? Because you talk a lot about it and then there are other portions where you kind of say, all right, and then it succeeded after a lot of failures. How did you navigate that? Um, I wanted to address it, but a book could only be so long. And so, you know, you, you have constraints in terms of how many pages. I didn't want to write a 500 page tome. I, I want to write a book that was that people could read and, and get through um, and, and was enjoyable. I, I you know, I'm sure some people will cry when they read the portions about the shoot down and how I feel about my buddies. But I also hope that there are laugh out loud moments as well. Um, so, you know, I, I thought that I, I treated it and I, I was upfront about it. But I, I in my own life, I don't dwell on, on things for a long time, you know, and, and that's just how I am. It's like, OK, I went through that. It was tough. It sucked. I even have a chapter called Own the Suck. <laughs> You know, it's just an army philosophy, you know, and it sucked and I own it. And, and now I'm moving on. I'm, now I'm, I'm addressing the suck of being a working mom of two girls under the age of six and, and, you know, trying to be a good senator at the same time. So I'm always moving on with the next phase. I, I acknowledge what happened. Um, I, I don't shield away from it, but I can't dwell on it because I just don't have the time. I mean, after this interview, I still got to go buy all the stuff for an Easter basket, which I haven't done yet. And what are we like 48 hours away? <laughs> from from Easter egg hunt time, I just don't got the time to to spend you know dwelling on the past. Uh, no, absolutely. <laughs> Own the suck is, is a fantastic chapter title, by the way. I do want to give props <laughs> to that. Um, <laughs> I, I'm wondering how uh, you know constituents shape this at all. Um, you know, if you had any conversations with people about your personal life that that ended up affecting certain chapters in the book. You know, if if Illinoisans at events inspired you in any particular mm -hmm. way. Oh, definitely. My constituents are why I was able to write this book um, because over, um, you know, the last years of first, the, my four years in the House and now my four years in the Senate, as I've talked to constituents, um, I've been prompted to tell stories that I never told before. Like I never told people that, you know, I, I my dad was out of a job for five years and that we were struggling and, and that I, you know, I was the only one putting food on the table for our family for 
for a little time there. I, I only started talking about that because I went and met folks at a steel mill that had been laid off. And I looked out into this audience and it was people said, you know, I'm 52 years old. What am I going to do? And I went and it hit me that and out of and, and I just started talking about my dad in that meeting. And I'd never spoken about him being out of work before. And my staff was like, I did not know that about you. And so it is my constituents. Um, it's, it's the fact that after I had my two girls, uh, I started talking about IVF because and then women would come up to me and it's like, oh my God, thank you for talking to me. And I've had more than one uh, uh, you know, person come up to me and say, because of you, I went and tried IVF and now I'm pregnant or I've had my baby. Um, and so it is my constituents who have made me comfortable in trying to relate to them, to understand them and hear them. Um, uh, I've been able to share experiences with them. Um, and that's gotten me to the place where I'm now able to write this book because I've been able to open up myself and, and share these stories. And I've learned to recognize that these are not uniquely my, my stories. These are stories that people have gone through. And I hope people see themselves in my story, whether they're the first person to go to college like I was, whether they have been asked, where are you from? Because, uh, you know, even though they're Americans, whether they have had to fight to try to get some support at work for being a working mom. Uh, um, you know, I hope they see themselves in this book. Oh, that's really beautiful. Um, you know, I wonder also if writing it helps you sort of think about your future in new and different ways. You know, we, we, we sometimes see members step away to spend quote more time with their family and you know you have a young family have you sort of started to reevaluate that at all no i you know what i got to pay for college Are you kidding me i'm not stopping <laughs> working anytime soon i got a 6 year old and a 3 year old i got like you know college tuition coming up uh, i can't work i can't stop work for another 18 years at least <laughs> that's a real problem you know, my, my, my oldest daughter will get my husband's GI bill, but I use mine up for my PhD. So I, I got to be hustling for Miley. <laughs> no, I, I, listen, it, 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 um, being a Senator is an amazing job and I love it. The only thing that's better than this job was company commander in the army. Um, uh, if I can't be a company or a battalion commander, then I'm happy to be a United States Senator and, um, I think my job makes me a better mom. Um, and, and so I, I plan on doing this for a long time to come. Wonderful. Do you plan on maybe writing another book? Oh my God, this was, <laughs> let's see how, let's see how this one goes. Let's see if this one is well-received. And, and, and um, you know, I, 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 as I said, I didn't write this book just to tell my story. I wrote this book to tell America's story and that my life is just an example of an American story and to really answer my daughter's question. This was really for them. I end the book, if you read it, with a letter to my daughters that I think other moms and dads might recognize that the desire to, to speak to your child as an adult, but, but from your current experience. Um, if I write another book, it might be about all the great people at Walter Reed that helped me recover, all the peer visitors. I talk about the peer visitors in the book, and there are such characters there, you know, Elle and Tom and Elle Porter, both of whom are Korean War veterans, um, uh, both of whom uh, are, you know, he's an amputee, she's a physical therapist, and um, uh, in their 80s became the sex talk couple for the amputees, because they were so upfront about, you know, uh, what life is like post-amputation. Yeah, um, and, and to uh, the milkshake man, a Vietnam veteran with lost both his legs who wandered around Walter Reed handing out milkshakes, paid out of his own pocket for literally years. 
uh, to help support the troops. So I would love to tell those stories in more detail. Uh, not to make more work for you, Senator, but if agents are listening, I think that's a fantastic book idea. <laughs> uh, well, I, this was a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for your time. And I hope all viewers uh, go out and, and read Everyday's Gift. Fantastic book. Thank you again. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this week's Afterwards podcast. Subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Send us an email to podcasts at c-span.org.